Good evening, dear friends and fellow travelers to eternity. It is with joy that we assemble tonight, the last session of this gospel meeting, to worship our Father in heaven in spirit and in truth, and to open his word and learn more of its great precepts. I blend my voice tonight with that of Brother Tony's as he expressed appreciation to you for being here tonight, and it is certainly the truest and deepest sentiments of my heart and gratitude for all that you've done in preparation for this meeting and in facilitating the cause of Christ in that way, all of the wonderful meals and all of the activities that have been taking place to prepare for the meeting. It shows that you love God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and His church. It shows that you love the brethren here that meet at Bobby Branch and that you care about those out in our community and want them to receive the gospel of Christ in open hearts and with ready minds. It has been edifying for me to get to be with you this week, and I am certainly honored to have had the invitation to come spend some time with you and get to spend a few precious moments with my good friend, Brother Tony Lawrence. Tonight in our lesson, we want to take notice of some things you wouldn't expect God to do. I've got a uh, passage of Scripture on the screen for you. You might want to look at it in your Bible. You know, from what we know about God from the material created universe... These things are without excuse, even his eternal power and Godhead. Romans 1 and verse 20. And when we read through the Bible, we know that God is an awesome God. That he is powerful. In fact, we have a word omnipotent, all-powerful. And so we would know that about God, but we have a specific declaration from inspiration in this passage of Scripture that tells us how great the thoughts and mind of our God are. Here in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 through 9, the 8th century B.C. prophet known as the Messianic prophet wrote, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It occurs to me tonight that if we can study things that you wouldn't think God would do, it would assist, certainly verse 7, a wicked man to forsake his way. Sometimes a wicked man thinks his way is the only way there is. It is the best way to go. It's the most enjoyable way. It is the one that brings him the most fulfillment in life. And it is superior to all other ways. Well, here in the Word of God, we have the urging toward the wicked man to forsake his ways. If we're going to be asking people to forsake, as Brother Ray has prayed tonight, the strong allurement of this world, we need to give them something even more powerful and even stronger than that from which to turn away from the world and turn toward God. And that is to know that God will open and reveal His infinite mind to us, human beings, His people. His thoughts are higher than ours. We cannot imagine what God is thinking. God must reveal that to us, and He's done that in His Word. That's one of the things that keeps Bible study always so intriguing and so interesting, is God has opened His mind in this book, and allowed us to take a look at His will, something on our own we never could attain to. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, Paul says that the foolishness of God 
is wiser than men. I think there he's using a figure of speech known as hyperbole to indicate the greatness of God in contrast to the weakness and frailty of man. If God were having a foolish thought, the simplest and lowest thought that he could ever possibly have would far exceed the wisest thoughts of men. We've got some pretty smart men in this world. I remember when you had one of these, and it'd be the size of like a half gallon of milk. And you see somebody talking on it. Oh, what is that thing? That's a cell phone. Why, these, somebody has developed these things where you can watch television on them. You can do research on the Internet on these. You can take pictures with these. You can even make a telephone call with these. Now, it takes somebody smart to do that. <laughs> Probably making a telephone call is the hardest thing to do. But, but it's very amazing to see the technology. Think about the advancements in modern medicine. I appreciate very much the medicines and the medical procedures that are extending our life, where we're living longer. I'm glad they came around with that, especially as we get out here toward the end of our life. It's nice of them to do that. They put a lot of thought and a lot of energy into that. There are some smart people in this world. But the smartest of them, although singular or maybe grouped together, is still not equal to the foolishness of God. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 25. I'm saying that to try to help us appreciate the fact that God's thoughts are higher than ours and we cannot know what He thinks unless He reveals it and we certainly cannot anticipate His will. He must reveal it to us in order for us to know it. So when we study the Bible, we're actually peering into the, the deep recesses of the infinite mind of God Almighty. I find it interesting that in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, I don't know who counted this up, somebody smarter than me obviously, and they said that the average length of a word in the Bible without the proper names is five letters. And that the Bible, when read, is read on about a fifth grade reading level. And I like that because that's about the grade level that I'm on when I'm trying real hard. The Bible is written to be understood. One time I heard Curtis Cage give a lesson wherein he talked about the economy of words in the Bible. That's impressive. When you think about the creation of the material universe in 31 verses in Genesis, the first chapter, Oh, it shows you something about divine economy of words. God is able to express massive concepts in just a few words. The teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ is very, very direct and pointed so that we just simply cannot miss it. You don't find somebody saying, well, I don't understand the teaching of Christ because he used words that are over my head. Oh, no, he used the simplest words and yet fashioned them and crafted them into sentences that are profound, so that he would say that these are the words of life, John 6, 63. So here in Isaiah 55, the point is being made that God's thoughts are not ours, they're superior to ours. And what I'd like to do tonight is take a look at five illustrations of this from familiar Bible teaching that would let us see things that you wouldn't expect God to do. Now, I don't know about you, I'll just, let me just say this, I don't know how you like it, I mean, we're going through each of these, one in turn, and, you know, that's, that's okay. I, I, myself, when I'm listening to a lesson, I like to see the whole thing on one chart. Because that way I know when the guy's got to get through. You're at my mercy tonight. You don't know how long I'm going to go. You don't know what's next, how many of them things has he got, how long are we going to be here. So you're at a disadvantage. So in order for you to, to kind of be uh, advantaged like I like to be, how many points have you got up there that we're going to see? Five. There are five illustrations. So as we approach number five, you can start reaching for your songbook. We're going to be wrapping it up about then. And then we're going to have five steps in the gospel plan of salvation. So you've got five and five tonight, and the lesson is yours. Let's start with this first one. 
Again, I'm telling you, these are well-known Bible lessons. And I'm just going to make us the singular point that we're seeing carried throughout each of these five, that there are things that God does that you wouldn't expect Him to do. Because I want to ingrain in our hearts and minds that God's thoughts are higher than ours. So that when we read the Bible, we will accept what He says and listen in simple, trusting faith. That's the goal of our study tonight. Let's take notice of the Garden of Eden. God creates the world, as I mentioned a minute ago, in six days, six literal days. And it was a beautiful world where every need was supplied. And God made the crown of his creation, man. God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Adam is made in the image of God. God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Man made in the image of God. For the first time God saw something was not good, and that was for the man to be alone. And so he put Adam to sleep and took a rib out of his side, and from that rib he made a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she is taken out of man. Notice the closeness of that. Sometimes when we do weddings, we have the opportunity to talk about how close that couple was. A rib from the side, not the bone out of his head to make him, or a bone from under his foot where he could walk over her, but a bone from his side to make woman so that she would be a true help meet and lifelong companion. These two are in the Garden of Eden with the requirements to dress and keep it. They had activity and industry in the garden. A friend of mine is retiring. I was working with her on some of her retiring, retirement planning. I said, what do you want to do? And she said... I'm going to have my backyard landscaped, and I'm going to get out there and work with those plants. I'm going to be digging and clipping and snipping and planting, and I'm just going to let the hours roll by. Well, she's certainly deserving of rest and relaxation. She will enjoy great fulfillment from that. My wife likes gardening, you know, dabbling in the flower bed, and she likes working with roses, which is not, I'm not too fond of except for the fact she likes them. She likes that. I run the weed eater, so I don't like it too much, especially when I cut, uh, cut the grass barefooted. But um, some people find great enjoyment in that, and it was fulfilling to Adam and Eve to be dressing and keeping that garden. They only had one negative command, as you see on the board here. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, Thou shalt surely die. Again, you don't see any complex words there. This is a command that would be readily understood by both Adam and Eve. Eat everything you want out of any tree in the garden. There's just one exception. Don't eat of it. And it comes with consequences. When you do, you will surely die. Well, we know what the command is, and we see what responsibilities they have before him and the blessings that they enjoy. Do you know that this man and woman are having such close fellowship with God. God is walking in the cool of the evening and speaking with them, we read in the book of Genesis. And mankind will not enjoy that close fellowship and communion with God and no one in this world ever has except for our Lord Jesus Christ until we arrive on heaven's shores. When Adam and Eve fall from grace through the efforts of the devil, it is known as the fall of man. And the long history and the broad story of the Bible is man's journey having fallen from grace in the Garden of Eden, having been driven from the Tree of Life, 
to once again, finally and at last, in the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, to have access to the tree of life in heaven itself. That is not only the long story of the Bible itself, but it's the long unfolding story of all the history of man from Adam and Eve until Jesus comes again. The devil is more subtle than all the creatures of the field. He is there because he had fallen from heaven, Luke 10, 18. Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. He is out deceiving the nations, and he is powerful, Ephesians 2 and verse 1. As you know, he appears to Mother Eve in the form of a serpent. And he slithers up to her and says, Yea, hath God said, Thou shalt not eat of every tree of the garden. Eve states a clear affirmation of understanding. Yes, that's what God has said. There was never a time entering her mind before then, however long they lived before this event. And of that time we are uncertain that she had any thought whatsoever of doing anything other than what God asked them to do. And she enjoyed the rich fulfillment and fellowship with God and love with her husband all the way up until that moment that Satan asked her that question. And then Satan says and only alters what God had said. He took God's same words and said, Thou shalt not surely die. Look what he did. He kept the good words, the word of God. He kept all that in place. And he only changed it as slightly as he could in order to retain all of the meaning of that. He knew that came from the vast mind of God whose thoughts are far higher than man's and even his own being Satan. And he knew the, the smallest amount that he would change those words, the greater impact and effect his efforts would have. I think it's interesting if you'll just look at this story for just a minute and realize that here the devil, he doesn't come with a full frontal assault with all of his tricks on Adam. He could have, but he doesn't. He chooses to slither around behind him and sneak up on Eve. The devil is like that. He avoids strength. That's why in the New Testament we read, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, Ephesians 6.10. And we're admonished in James 4.7, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What? A weak person like me? He'll flee from me? What do I have to do to have that happen? You just resist him. Just resist him. And he will flee from you. The devil approached Eve and said, You shall not surely die. When she saw the fruit that it was good to eat, she took that fruit and she ate of it. And she gave to Adam and he did eat. I'd like for you to notice in this connection that the Bible is still talking about this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And the Bible discusses what was going on that Adam was not deceived in the transgression, but Eve was deceived. And if we weren't talking about this now in a sermon, but we were in a Bible class, usually in my experience, some of the ladies speak up and object. And they don't like to be categorized as someone who is easily deceived. Who would be? But then notice also, Adam is not deceived. He's defiant. Which would you rather have? Deception or defiance? To me, defiance is worse than a deception. If a person is deceived, if you show them wherein they've been deceived, they may have the opportunity to change. But if they are defiant, you're really up against it. Oh, they may change too. But remember, they started out defiant. And that discussion is carried forward in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
They eat of that forbidden fruit, and they are driven from that garden. Now, there's something that I want you to notice here. I don't know if we would think God would ever do this. All they did was eat the fruit. All they did is just violate His statement just that one time. If it was you or if it was me, I mean, you just think about what would happen if we put, put that before the state legislature. What do we do when people who are, are arrested for drunk driving, what do we do? Well, we're going to give them three strikes and then they're out. Some of them do enough damage on the first time to take lives. But oh, we're so tolerant, aren't we? Well, let's give them you know, three strikes and you're out. We would say, well, you know, we've gone to all this trouble to create this universe. And we've made this universe and we've enjoyed this fellowship. We really truly do love one another and care about each other. And we're privileged to be in the presence of God. And that's going to change if God doesn't just accept them in what they're doing. Why didn't God just say, well, you know, we'll forget it for this time. But now let's don't let that happen again. God didn't do that. He drove them out of the garden. And the Bible says that he set cherubims, that would be multiple angels, at the entrance of the garden and had a flaming sword that turned every way to prohibit them from re-entry into the garden. I don't know if we set out to read the Bible if we'd have thought God would ever do that to man and woman whom he had created. But I think it is important for us, and that's our first point tonight of the five I'm mentioning here, to know that that is exactly what God did. And I say that because I'm just telling you, across the years, if I had a nickel for everybody who was persuaded that in the judgment God just going to call it off, well, I would be driving a new car. <laughs> it wouldn't take much for you to have a boatload of money if that were the case. Because people think, that, well, the Bible is good, the church is okay, there's some good people down there, but I'll just tell you, I don't really think God's that serious about all this. I think when we get to, I mean, I've been a good person. I think when we get to the judgment, He's going to let me, I know He's going to let my mama in. No, she wasn't a member of the church, but she was so sweet. She took care of us. She sacrificed. She worked hard to make a home. And she loved us with all of her heart. And I never heard her say a cross word to anybody. I cannot believe that God would not accept her on the basis of who she is. That's why we need to study this lesson tonight. Because Adam and Eve in the same place, they only sinned once. That's all it's recorded one time, and they're driven out of the garden. And as I mentioned to you, this Garden of Eden is for us representative of a home in heaven because that's what's under discussion in Revelation 21 and 22 out at the end. And I think we just need to be sober-minded about it and realize that when God has stated something, if we transgress His law like Adam and Eve did, there are consequences. Somebody says, why? I just don't understand why. I can tell you why you don't understand why. You don't understand why for the same reason I don't understand why. It is because God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and His ways are above our ways so that we can't understand Him unless... He reveals His will to us. And once He has revealed His will to us, we need to appreciate what He said enough to walk in simple, trusting faith and obedience to His Word. You know, it stated of the prophets that they had the ability to see over the horizon through the inspiration of God to see what was coming, to see the coming Messiah. And to write in such detail, as graphically as Isaiah does and Zechariah and others, about that. 
How could they write about that? God knows the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46.10, He is infinite in knowledge and He could see the future and what would happen. And He had the prophets record that. We need lessons like this today for one reason. Because there are those, even in the upper rungs of Christian education, who are writing books. One such book is The Transforming Word, published by Abilene Christian University, that denies what I just said. On page 66 of that book, the authors say, There is no unequivocal prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ and or the church in the Old Testament. Old New Testament writers reinterpreted and reapplied Old Testament Scripture to fit the situation. Twenty-three college professors associated with churches of Christ stood by that. We need lessons like this to see, oh yes, God knew what was coming in the future. Those people who wrote that commentary don't believe it. We do. And we've tried to call them out on it. We'll keep trying to call them out on it. Until they come out, we'll keep exposing and exposing. Because God's thoughts are higher than man's. That insults some men. Guy got a Ph.D., he's a little insulted that he's found somebody smarter than he is. And so he wants to say there's no predictive prophecy in the Old Testament. False doctrine. We need to know it and see it, just like here with Adam and Eve. If there were no predictive prophecy, we've been talking about type and antitype. You could have no type and antitype. Peter would just be bumbling when he says the light figure whereunto. Oh no, nobody's stumbling in the Bible. These are the words of God, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, Hebrews 4 and 12. Well, I just wanted you to see this because I don't know if we would think God would do something like this to drive them out and not allow them to come back. Here begins the fall of man. <clears throat> Second example, again, is familiar. <clears throat> that is of the priests Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. I spoke about them earlier. We won't spend a whole lot of time on this. I don't think we need to. You already see how I'm going to proceed through each of these remaining four examples. And you know what's about to happen is we're going to see that God's going to do something you wouldn't expect. Now, why wouldn't you expect it? Well, the reason that I wouldn't expect it is because you've got these fellows. They're priests. They're the right people. You couldn't just have anybody going into the tabernacle and offering a sacrifice. You had to be from the right tribe. And they were. You had to be in the right place, the tabernacle. They were in the right place. You had to make the right preparation. And they had. They were dressed as they should be. They have uh, censers with incense on it that's burning, just like they're supposed to have. They're in the right place, the right people, the right preparation. They're where they need to be. They're doing what they ought to be doing. But Moses informs us that there is one thing amiss. And that is that they started that incense burning with strange fire. In Numbers chapter 16, verses 46, we learn that that fire was to come from the coals of the altar. You remember how the tabernacle was set up as a tent, 30 cubits by 10 cubits with two compartments, the most holy place being 10 cubits square, the holy place 10 by 20 cubits square, containing the furniture that was there. The Ark of the Covenant was in the most holy place, for example. Outside there, the brazen laver, just outside the door. And then beyond that, the brazen altar, five cubits square, on which animal sacrifices were offered as burnt offerings. 
And they kept coals burning there for those offerings and sacrifices. When those priests would go into the tabernacle, they'd go out there to that brazen altar and take the coals from off there and put it in their censers and ignite that incense, and then they would make their way into the tabernacle with that. We have no way of knowing where they got that fire from that day. It's just referenced as strange fire, showing us no matter where it came from. It was strange because, Leviticus 10:2, the Lord commanded them not. And God sent down fire and devoured them, and they died. I don't think you would expect God to do that. Not with all the other positives, just one little mistake. You know, one occasion I was baptizing a man, he was, uh, or baptizing a woman. She was in the, in the hospital, and there was an adjoining nursing home, and they had a large bathtub back there. She decided that she would obey the gospel. And so we took her back there. We made preparations, got that, bat, that bathtub full. And uh, she was a terminal cancer patient. We all got her in the water, and we're going to put her down. And all of us were not members of the church there. One young Nazarene fellow. He's got her legs there, and her leg is sticking up out of the tub. And he pushed it over to the side of the tub, and he said, You think that'll be all right? And here we'd move this woman from her hospital bed to a gurney into the room. A lot of movement for a person that sick. It was a big deal. We got her down into that water. But surely this is good enough. I mean, she's in, she's in here in, in this tub. She's going to be baptized just because her knee's sticking out. Isn't that all right? So what I saw him, I saw we had a teachable moment. And I said, well, let me ask you. The Lord asked us to be buried in baptism, Colossians 2.12. Now, if a funeral director were to bury a loved one of yours, and you went back out after they had completed the interment, and you looked down at the graveside, and you saw a knee sticking out, how would you feel about that? Wouldn't you say, you didn't bury him? Well, all that's sticking out is his knee. He wasn't buried. The boy said, I get your point. That's right. It's a burial. We're going to have a burial here today, a burial in water. So while it might not seem like any big deal to us, in order to comply with heaven's terms, just bury the person. Do what the Lord said. Bury them in a watery grave. And that is exactly what we did with Althea, and she was raised to walk in newness of life. It doesn't seem like a big deal that they have strange fire. After all, the incense is burning. But yet it was to God. I think it's important for us to notice that they did something that God commanded them not. Today, a lot of times folks say, well, we have instrumental music because the Lord didn't say we couldn't. And so we feel justified in having it. He didn't say we couldn't do it. When he told Nadab and Abihu the place from which to get that fire, that eliminated every other place. And they're making a burning lesson on that point for us tonight. He charred their carcasses into charcoal because of it. And today for somebody to say, well, he didn't say we couldn't. Somebody's not studying the Bible here in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. To know the principle that should guide us is we can only take steps of faith as we're directed from God. If we take steps without direction, it's not a step of faith. We walk in steps of faith as Abraham. Romans 4 and verse 12. And when a person is taking a step of instrumental music, saying it'll be just fine because the Lord didn't say we couldn't use it, he is not walking by faith. If he's walking by faith, just show us the passage. In the Hires-Blakely debate in 1988, Hires put on the board a sentence up there and said, show us the passage with the blank where the New Testament authorizes instrumental music in worship. 
The debate comes and goes, and the blank is up there the whole time. It has saved everybody some time if given old Blakely thought that it was authorized in the New Testament. Instead of us debating this, hey, we can all be down having ice cream here in five minutes. If you'll just walk up here and write the passage on the board, the debate's over. Because we're telling you it is not authorized. You're saying it is. Well, then write the verse on the board. No, you'd rather do something the Lord commanded you not and strive to convince people that it's all right. God's thoughts are higher than ours. And we cannot anticipate what God said. We cannot alter what God said. We are to submit in simple trusting faith to what God said in order to be pleasing unto Him. That's why in churches of Christ we don't use instrumental music. Churches all across McMinnville tonight who do and up and down the highways where we travel using instrumental music are indicating that they either are in deception about it or they are defined about what the Bible teaches on this point. Or they may be good, well-meaning, and sincere people. I think Nadab and Abihu would qualify too as well-meaning and sincere people. Their well-meaning nature and their sincerity is never brought into question. The fact that they violated the will of God is what got them burned up. And it's going to get us burned up if we don't watch what we're doing and make sure that we have authority for what we do. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all by the authority in the name of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 and 17. So you might not think God would do that. You wouldn't expect God to do that, but he does. I said these are all familiar. This is the third one. This is Naaman the leper. He's found in 2 Kings the Fifth chapter, especially in verse 10, we want to notice. You remember this? Naaman the leper? Naaman is captain of the host of Syria. He's a powerful warrior. And he is very close to the king of Syria. And you will notice that he is a leper. Now then, it, it comes to pass that there is a Jewish maid that had been taken captive with others from Israel. And she learns that Naaman is a leper. And she said, would God that my master were with the prophet that is in Israel. He could heal, her of, heal him of this leprosy. Now leprosy was an incurable disease. If there's any cure for this man's leprosy, no man on earth would have a clue what it would be. Incurable. And the little maid talks that up. They begin to discuss it. And they've heard that there, there might be a cure available to him. And so letters are written, and the king of Syria says, well, let's send messengers down there to the king of Israel. And he not only sent letters. Have you ever noticed that in verse 5, he sent 10,000 talents of silver, 6,000 pieces of gold, and 10 changes of raiment. He's well-meaning in going down. He's not making a demand. He's coming with gifts to the king of Israel. And he's coming with a request. We want to know who this prophet is that could heal leprosy. You remember what the king of Israel did? What? Cure leprosy? He's got to be trying to pick a fight. Who can clear? Who can cure leprosy? And he's very disturbed about that. Because here Syria is looming large just to their north. And he's saying we need to produce somebody that can cure leprosy? Surely he's wanting to fight. Here's how upset he was about it. He rent his clothes. In his exasperation, he rents his clothes about it. Well, Elisha heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes. He wanted to know what's up. And when he finds out what is up, he sent to Naaman and told them that he could take care of that business. Well, when the servants came to Elisha, they came to his house. Elisha didn't even go to the door. 
He just sent message, a message that said, Go dip in Jordan seven times and your leprosy will be cured. Now we've all been surprised that while there was no cure for it, and while the king of Syria was aware that there could be, and so he sends to Israel for help, and all the provisions are made for the parties to meet, yet Naaman is upset. The Bible uses the word wroth. I understand that anger is one thing, and that being wrathful or wroth is an intensification of anger. And he is wroth at the suggestion that he should go down and dip into Jordan seven times. And he has a reason for it. He says, Are not the rivers of Avena and Farpar, fed by the melting snow of Mount Hermon, better waters than these? It's like I wouldn't object to being to dipping seven times if it was in the clear pools that descend from Mount Hermon. But to go dip in muddy Jordan? Why would he ask me to do such a thing as that? And he's upset. I'm glad that he has some friends around who said, if he'd asked you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? If he had asked you to go capture a city, would you do that? Oh, he could do it. What if he asked you to capture and subject a whole section? Would you do that if he, if he traded you that for clearing you of your leprosy? If he'd asked you to do some great thing, wouldn't you do it? Unhesitatingly, oh, yes, I would. I don't know what they had in mind. I'm just supposing those things. He would have done some great thing, the servant said, why not then just do what he says? And to his credit, Naaman humbles himself and goes down and dips in Jordan seven times and is healed of his leprosy. God does some things you wouldn't expect. Naaman didn't expect it. When he did simply what God said do, he was healed. I'm telling you, we cannot anticipate the mind of God. We must know it by way of revelation from his word so that we can walk in simple, trusting faith. Now, I've often seen this applied, and I think so, and like to do it myself, that when the Lord has asked us to be baptized, which he has, in fact, he's commanded that, why do people try to rationalize that away? Why do they try to say it's really not necessary? God could save me by faith only if he wanted to. You think God couldn't, save, couldn't cleanse Naaman of his leprosy and he wanted to? Surely he could. It's not a matter of what he could do. It was a matter of what he did. It's not a, a matter of what he could do with us. It is a matter of what he will do. And what he has told us that he will do is save us when we believe and are baptized, Mark 16, 16. Now, why do you want to argue with that? If he asks you to do some great thing, I know years ago when I was a teenager, I would go and visit at the Baptist church when they were having testimonies. And I would see some friends of mine, like one old boy named Tank. He was rough. He played guard or tackle one on the football team and could clear out half the other guys. He was rough and rugged, and everybody knew Tank was rough. And I saw him get up one night and give this glaring testimony about how wicked he was and how awful and everything. Right in front of about 3,000 people, he's giving his personal testimony. And it would be embarrassing and humiliating for him to do that. But he's up there doing it. Old Tank, who was probably an alcoholic by the time he was 17 years old, been in fights more than we could count. No telling what all else he did. I know he didn't fit into a desk in the schoolhouse. I know that. Oh, yeah, I'd do that. If that's what it takes to be saved, I'd get up and bear my soul before a large crowd. Well, look, God didn't ask you to do that. Why don't you just humbly submit to his will and be baptized? In baptism, it is a passive act. It is always be baptized, like in Acts 2.38. Submit to that. 
Show your love for God that you're willing to submit to His Word and His will and obey Him. Naaman sets a tremendous example before us tonight about something we wouldn't think God would do. He didn't think that that would ever be required of him to do that, dip in Jordan seven times. But then in simple trusting faith, when he did, he was cleansed. And if you will be baptized tonight, you will be saved. Not cleansed from leprosy and incurable disease, but cleansed from all past sins that will damn the soul throughout all eternity by simply doing what Jesus said. Our next example comes to us from the New Testament. It's with Ananias Sapphira in Acts the 5th chapter in verses... 1 through 11. There was a need in Jerusalem. You remember what happens on the day of Pentecost? There are devout Jews out of every nation under heaven. They'd assemble there to worship God. Well, now, having obeyed the gospel, as 3,000 do that first day, they want to know more. And they're continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They're learning more and more as they go. And now then it is the case that they need food, clothing, and shelter. And so there arises a need. Well, the way they would answer that need is... There would be people like Barnabas and others who if they had possessions, they would sell them and bring the money and give it to the apostles. The work of the church was more important than their own interests in their personal things. Ananias and Sapphira, following that example, sold a piece of ground. And they kept back part of the price and they brought it to the apostle Peter. I don't know why they ever in this world thought about this. Maybe they saw the generosity of others and they didn't want to think that they were anybody to think they were selfish in any degree. I don't know what the situation is with them. But they kept back part of the price, and when they got to the services of the church that day, they said, Here is the sum total of the amount we got for the sale of the property. They lied before God. And each of them, in turn, when they come forward and tell that lie, die. Ananias first. And then here comes his wife. Men, look out. You need to look out because you're leading your wife. And if you lead her astray, if you go astray, you can lead her astray also. That's what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. They made up that lie. He told it first. She followed in right in there. He wasn't even cold in his grave yet. Tells the same lie. And they carry him out too. Now, have you ever thought about this? Here you have the services of the church. We passed a collection plate around somebody dropped dead. And the preacher said, well, that's because he lied. He said it was the whole amount and it was part of it. And he could have put in part of it if he wanted to or all of it or whatever. It was his decision to make, not anyone else's. But rather he chose to lie. He lied to God and to the Holy Spirit. Acts 5, verse 3 and verse 5. You wonder how that would impact the congregation. Why didn't the church just disband and say, you know, I, I tell you what, this Christianity, I don't think I can live up to that. I don't think I can do that. If people are dying during the collection because they lie, the Catholics have mortal and venial sins. Denominational people have a thing called mental reservation where you can do any deed or really have any thought or say any words or do anything you want to. And as long as you have a mental reservation, you're not guilty of that sin. None of that stuff worked with Ananias and Sapphira. You ought to know that doesn't work by reading your Bible in Acts 5, 1 to 11. They died before the Lord because they lied. Why didn't the church disband? Sometimes today somebody will say something and it will hurt our feelings and we say, I'm never going back down there again. They hurt my feelings. They were inconsiderate of me. Even if it's not intentional or only incidental, some slight, I'm not going back. We know that happens today. You and I know people who could be great Bible teachers, but somebody said something in class that offended the teacher and he doesn't even try anymore. They, they, they might say something that they don't like, and I'm just not going to get up there anymore. 
Why didn't the church disband when Ananias and Sapphira died? Why didn't they say, no, 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 this bar is set too high? I think J.W. McGarvey has the best answer. He says, when this group of people saw that here are some people among whom insincerity and dishonesty will not be tolerated. Instead of being driven away, they were drawn to that. That's the kind of people I want to be associated with. Somebody that will be honest and sincere about what they're having to say and about what they're doing. Not hypocritical, not defiant. And when they saw that, great fear came upon all the church. Well, I don't know if you would think at the collection that Ananias and Sapphira would die. There are some things that God do that you just wouldn't expect. And this is one of them. And what we need to do in simple trusting faith is take God at His word when He says here, like in Romans 13 and verse 9, that we're not to steal. No stealing. It's not going to happen. Notice with me next, things you wouldn't expect God to do in the last place. This one, this one may surprise you. Worship attendance. I want you to notice the language of Hebrews 10.25. The subject is the assembly. The building may look familiar to you here. I'm not sure if you recognize this building. <clears throat> Maybe you do. Look at the language. In the New Testament, the other night I was talking about the Bible doctrine of the assembly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. There's a Bible doctrine about the assembly. You know, when the Lord saves us, He puts us in the church. The church from ecclesia. Ek, out of. Kaleo, called, called out of. Called out of the world. But what? Called into the assembly. At Ephesus in Acts, the 19th chapter, that assembly that's in that stadium there that Tony is showing us by way of the pictures, and some of you have even been there with him, that was a lawful assembly. You know what the word is in Greek? Ecclesia. Well, I think for us it would be beneficial to notice that the church is the ecclesia. We're called out of the world, but just not called out at random and then scattered. We're called into the assembly. And the Lord looks for us to assemble together because together we assemble as the church for the function of worshiping God and carrying forward the mission and purpose of the church. We're still the church when we're disassembled. But together we manifest the meaning of the assembly, the called out of the world, the called into the assembly. Notice this language here in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Watch this. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. What do you mean to tell me that the assembly is that important, that it's a willful sin if I, if I don't go? The church of our Lord has the assembly as an integral part of the church so that you don't have the church and you don't have an assembly because the church is to assemble. You know, a person might be in a civic organization and they require you to assemble and they may make efforts to assemble, but if you don't assemble every time they meet, well, they're not going to boot you out and keep your dues paid. You probably won't be in the leadership, but you can probably stay, stay there with them. I was invited to speak at a Rotary Club. I'm not a Rotarian, but I was asked to speak in a different city in the Rotary Club. I was there, and I was meeting some of the Rotarians, and we were having a discussion before lunch and before my little, little talk. And one of the ladies came up and said, uh, she knew I wasn't from around there, and she said, are you making up with us today? 
And I said, oh, ma'am, I'm sorry. I didn't know I did anything to offend you. <laughs> what she meant is, are you meeting with us today? And that's the way Rotarians do. If you go somewhere else, you're traveling, you can meet with any of the road. I didn't know that. You can meet at a Rotary Club, and they call that, I'm going to be making up with you today. Oh, good. I thought there for a minute I'd offended somebody and hadn't even started talking yet. So you can be in an, in an association like that, and you don't have to attend every single meeting, and they may keep you on board. If you want to be in the leadership, a director, one of the presidents, you're going to need to show more dedication. But in the Lord's Church, every member is important, 1 Corinthians 12. So that when it comes to the assembly, if we do not assemble, the writer here says we are sinning willfully. Now notice what he says about that. If we sin willfully, remember, no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. That's strong language, isn't it? I don't think we would expect God to say that. If I want to go to the services of the church, I'll go or not go. But for me not to go is a willful sin and fiery indignation that will devour the adversaries? That's strong language. I don't know that we'd expect God to do that. But that's what he's telling us. And he doesn't stop there. Because he says that God, our God, is a consuming fire. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's very strong language about the assembly, wouldn't you think? You know, we always try to encourage people to come to the services of the church. We do everything we can to admonish them to be there, to try to help them any way we can with their scheduling and work, to be in the services of the church as much as they can for the benefit derived from the assembly. But here, the way the writer of Hebrews does it is say you're sinning willfully. After you've received the knowledge of the truth, if you're going to do that, there's no more sacrifice for sins, but a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law, notice, despising the law, Despising the New Testament just because we don't assemble? He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. How suppose ye shall not be more severe with us? More severe with us under the New Testament for despising God's law and not assembling. I don't know if we think God would do that, but that's what he says. Right there in Hebrews 10, 25 to 31. The assembly is very important. I don't know if you ever think about what it means to be an elder in the Lord's church. They are shepherds and they're guarding the flock. And a shepherd, when his flock is scattered, one of the first things he thinks about is the vulnerability of the sheep. And for a group of elders to realize that the members are not assembling is great consternation. Two of them in this building the other night talking about where they go. And they just can't get everybody there. That's why shepherds talk. My sheep are scattered and I can't get them gathered back. We're praying, we're visiting, we're talking to them, we're encouraging them, and they're just scattered. We can't get them all gathered up. We're responsible for that if we're contributing to that. If we want to assist the elders of the Lord's church, we want to be obedient to God and make their work easier. And provide they can provide us then with the guidance that they need. Well, there then tonight are five examples where we are urged to just... In simple trusting faith to believe what the Word of God says. Because we cannot anticipate the mind of God. And we only know the mind and the will of God as He Himself chooses to reveal it to us on the pages of the Bible. With that in mind then, let's take notice of the gospel plan of salvation. In the gospel plan of salvation, we are to hear the Word of God. Now here's where it starts. How do we know what to do to become a Christian? Hear the gospel. Romans 10:17. So then faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. 
Not the creed of men. Not some craftily worded document that is religious, like a creed book or other guidebooks that we've got today, but hearing the Word of God. This is the only way that faith can come, is by hearing the Word of God. Listen to it and read it and study it. Then we are taught to believe it. Well, it's very believable. Across the years, it has faced all comers by way of distraction and destruction, and the Bible still stands. And its message is still solid as the rock of Gibraltar. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now that's a direct, straightforward statement. If we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we can be saved. It's necessary for us to believe that. In Romans 2, 4, Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. You know, we talk about the wrath of God, and we've done that even in regard to the attendance of all things. But also the goodness of God is motivational. To whom do we give thanks when we have a splendid meal like we enjoy tonight? To whom do we give thanks when we have a home that is not racked with the division and strife that so many suffer in our society due to divorce and other problems? Who do we thank when we have a job that we enjoy and they give us money for being there? Who do we thank for that? When we have our hearts filled with gratitude for all of the good things in life, the health we enjoy, some of you have good looks you can be thankful for, we direct that attention to God, the goodness of God, because God is good. That, too, leads us to repentance. You know, I knew my grandmother. We called her Mama. That's where I got my blue eyes from. She was the only one in our family on either side that had blue eyes. And what my older sisters, she raised them for a while, what they say about her is, you never wanted to disappoint Mama. If she asked you to do something, those girls would do it as strongly as they could because the last thing they ever wanted was to see a look of disappointment on Mama's face. When we think about the goodness of God, we have much that same sentiment. We wouldn't want to do anything to disappoint the God who has loved us so much and given us every good and perfect gift, James 1 and 17. The goodness of God leads us to repent, to stop a wicked lifestyle, and to turn toward God, to stop that confidence that we have that we can be saved on our own merit because we're good people and there are people worse off than we are and behave worse than we do. I can be saved because I'm so much better than most people around me. But repent of that and turn away from it and submit to the divine will of God. Confession of faith in Christ uttering the words that we believe Jesus is God's Son. You know the denominations don't have it right on this now. There was a young girl who was baptized. I say she was young. She was 28. She was baptized into Christ because she came to realize she didn't make the appropriate confession. Notice, what was the confession? The denomination into which she was baptized, here's the confession. It's standard. You know it everywhere. I believe that God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven me of my sins. That's the confession. That is not the confession of the New Testament. Say, well, everything's the same except baptism. No, the confession is not the same, brethren. When you say, I believe that God for Christ's sake has forgiven me of my sins, you have not said, as Acts chapter 8 verse 37 reveals, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Different confession. 
Whatever your baptism was, it wasn't the baptism of the New Testament because it was not preceded by the good confession. It was preceded by an acknowledgement of the fact that Christ died to save people from sins instead of that he's the Son of God. Here in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, Paul says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We must confess Christ. You know how you can tell the difference just readily? The confession. You're confessing Christ. If you came forward to confess your sins, how old are you, by the way? All the sins of the past you're going to confess? Man, we'd be here to midnight. You start confessing all your sins. We get bored after a while. All these things this person has done. And what if you couldn't remember them all? You can, if you couldn't get forgiveness until you confessed them, and it's been so long since you've done some of them, you wouldn't even know what to confess. We confess Jesus Christ unto salvation. And then we're baptized into Christ. Romans 6, 3. Know ye not that so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. Uh, please recall, most of us were here when we talked about Christ shed his blood and his death, John 19, verse 33 to 35. And we are baptized into his death where we contact the merits of that shed blood. And that is why we can be raised to walk in newness of life, verse 4. That is why by faith in the operation of God who raised him from the dead, our sins are remitted, Acts 2.38, or forgiven. We are saved, Mark 16, 16, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. We are in Christ. Why don't you accept that by simple trusting faith? There may be somebody here tonight who's been fighting against this teaching because you have rationalized certain things in your mind. There are things concerning God that you wouldn't expect Him to do. And I want you to know that if in simple trusting faith you obey His will, He will save you from sins. Then we are to be obedient by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom ye also are the called of Jesus Christ. To erring Christians, we are to repent and pray to God, Acts 8, verse 20 to 24. And then we are, when we are Christians, we are added to the church of Christ. That's also in Romans, Romans 16 at verse 16. That's what we would like to see you do tonight. Use the opportunity in simple trusting faith with Bible teaching alone to obey the God of heaven whose thoughts are above ours. His power and might is above ours. He'll see us safely through to heaven's golden shore if we will but trust his word. Tonight, heaven's invitation is ours. We hope that if you're in need, that you'll use this last opportunity during this particular gospel meeting to render obedience to the will of God while we stand and while we sing.